Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies. In the next minutes, you're going to hear a discussion with an investigative reporter of Stat News, Casey Ross, who covers AI development in healthcare and medicine. My name is Carla and I am an AI-based engine for synthesizing text-to-voice. I am helping the host of Faces of Digital Health today because she lost her voice temporarily due to a cold and could not record this podcast introduction. What an odd coincidence for the episode about AI, right? Thank God I exist, the host, whose name is very difficult to pronounce, but let me spell it. It's TJASA is grateful to Descript for creating me. In the upcoming discussion, you will hear about the state of trust in AI solutions in healthcare, what have we learned from the development of IBM Watson, and more. In a report published last year, Casey Ross shared his findings of an analysis of 161 AI products cleared by the FDA between 2012 and 2020. As it turns out criteria for assessment and the dataset submitted differed a lot. Here are the details. Casey, you're an investigative reporter covering the use of artificial intelligence in medicine and its underlying questions of safety, fairness, and privacy. In your opinion, for a light start, is AI at this stage more of a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I would say AI itself in healthcare and in medicine is something of an empty vessel. It's it depends on what is poured into it in terms of intention and and the way in which it is developed. It's a tool and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And I think that the industry, healthcare providers, as well as the tech companies that are producing the models right now, are we're in a settling out period to figure out what are the right uses, what are the ways in which AI can be helpful. And I think in some ways it's just it's not being used in the right way. Sometimes that's because of bad intentions. Sometimes it's just because of unintended consequences of the use of AI in a particular area. I think it has the potential to do enormous good. I just don't think we're there yet. Recently, you reported that only seven of 161 AI products cleared by the FDA in recent years included any information about the racial composition of their data sets. And that's hugely important because we already know today with uh, clinical trials and research that everything impacts how a specific person is going to um, react to a drug and obviously also on technologies. And the devices that were cleared to use AI for diagnosis included serious conditions from heart disease, strokes, respiratory illness, and it was a concerning report. But I have to say that just last year, I was following a digital health conferences for the healthcare audience, medical experts, and when you listen to the presentations of Either it's just research using AI tools or products that are already used. It's very hard not to just be impressed. On the one hand, because the presented results are usually impressive and in these presentations, you obviously don't really have all the data. But knowing how complex AI is and how different AI models and um, AI technologies are, how can a clinician 
even assess if what he's being presented is something that's clinically valid or something that he or she should be skeptical about. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to evaluate, I think, for clinicians now, because we do see so many headlines and so many studies and so much positivity surrounding the use of the technology. The companies and the makers of these technologies are very good at marketing themselves, and they're very good at showing you a context in which the AI performs very well, but clinicians have to evaluate whether it's going to be it's going to be meaningful within their jobs. Is it going to provide them with timely information that actually impacts patient outcomes? And I think the way that you do that is is by examining the research, what is reported, what is not reported. If there isn't data on the racial composition of the data set or the geographic distribution of the data set or their, or gender for that matter, then you really don't know whether it's going to work for patients of diverse backgrounds who come from different parts of the world. And if those questions aren't asked and they're not answered, then I just, I don't think there's going to be confidence in these products. And I think clinicians have to really ask those kind of critical questions when they're thinking about deploying it because people's, people's lives are at stake here. And, and if you, introduce tools that don't work as advertised, then you can really have, you can really do harm. Stead actually had another very interesting report, which touched upon exactly that. The fact that clinicians are skeptical about these tools, and that's because they don't necessarily have the knowledge about AI. They wonder what the data sets uh, that the tools are based on, but uh, too often they're, uh, they're not, at least it was uh, the case in this report. In, they're just given the, a tool to, to test um, without a proper introduction, which kind of alludes to the, the management side of implementation issues that are present when it comes to adoption of healthcare technologies. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the studying, a lot of the testing and the validation that's done, it's all done on retrospective data sets most of the time. So it's not being being plugged in a clinical setting and used in pers- prospective care. So you can't really tell in a more complicated, messier clinical setting whether the introduction of the AI tool is actually going to benefit patient outcomes. I think you really can get a sense for the technical performance of a product based on a rep. Uh, on a retrospective data set, but you really can't tell how it's going to impact care, how it's going to impact outcomes. Are people going to fare better or worse from its use until it's introduced into real live clinical settings? And I don't, you know, I don't think there's enough data on that as yet, because it's really just beginning in a bunch of different domains. Did you come across any encouraging ideas as to how this gap could be breached? The gap between insights gained on retrospective data to the real world applications? There is some some very promising work that is being done around the world right now to try to introduce products into clinical settings and to study them. I know the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has breast cancer risk prediction tool, which is now being uh, tested in uh, countries all across the world from from Nordic European countries to Taiwan, to Brazil, to Africa, African-American populations. And they're really working on plugging it in and taking a look at how does it work on those populations. And I think that's a good model for 
how you get to answer those questions. It just takes time. It takes work and it, it takes a, an awful lot of commitment to ensuring fairness that it's going to work for everybody. Because if it works on a, a European Caucasian population and no one else, then what's the point? You actually got me thinking when you said that something needs to work for everybody. And what got me thinking was that when it comes to technology and AI, we have ruthless expectations about it. It has to be 100% effective and reliable, even though we know that when it comes to medical conditions and opinions of doctors, like the rates of discrepancies in second opinions are huge. To which extent do you think we should perhaps change the, the merits or the criteria we have towards AI and really think how much good can it actually bring before just going for all or nothing? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I think the the frame the framework in which we judge the technology is wrong. It's not going to be perfect 100% of the time. We have that expectations of machines because we have machines that work in our lives in so many different domains. And when you use a machine, you expect it's going to be perfect every time. It doesn't get tired. With artificial intelligence, because it's trained by human beings on data with inherent biases within it, it's not going to be perfect. But if it's used in a, an intentional way, in a thoughtful way, and it can't, then it can improve upon human performance and reduce bias in some ways, surface information that people need to have that can help them make decisions. I think it can be very valuable. I think judging it on an absolute no-fail scenario is just not the right way to look at it because I don't think I don't think it can ever really pass that test. Let's took, uh, take a look at judgments and criteria. You went through 161 products and the data sets that were submitted to be to, for these products to be approved by the FDA were vastly different. Some only had 100 patients, other had 15,000 patients. That's quite a striking difference and it makes it seem that the FDA doesn't really have clear criteria how to assess information. So what did you find out there? How rigorous is the process and does it even matter? Is it okay for one solution to have a smaller data set than the other with different conditions? There's a different uh, number of patients. So in some regards, it's normal also in drug development to have smaller uh, data sets of patients. Yeah, we just don't know very much about it because unfortunately the process to evaluate these products is as much of a black box as the products themselves. You just can't, you really don't have a sense based on the different data set sizes and study populations that are being referenced about what criteria the FDA is actually applying in the review. When you look at the different size of the data sets, 15,000 to sometimes zero, sometimes no validation performed. Sometimes the differences make sense in the sense that you have some products that are meant to be used in clinical care and others that are meant to be used by consumers. And so you can understand why there would be different amounts of data applied, different amounts of rigor applied based on how the product is going to be used. But even in looking within specific product codes of you know products that are essentially designed to be used in the same way and to do the same thing, 
you still saw a significant difference in the range in the amount of data that was being applied in the validation study. And there just isn't any public-facing information that tells you what the threshold is. What is the power analysis that's being done on the data to determine where the effect size can be achieved based on the data set size that is being used? We just don't know that. And I would think for there to be public confidence in the use of these tools, that they can perform and that they're reliable, I think we need to begin to see more of that information to understand what the criteria are. When it comes to confidence and reliability, I think it's uh, quite fair for the consumers, for the clinicians to rely on regulators to be sure that if something is approved, that it's safe to use. Because with the rapid development of technology, it's impossible for clinicians to be aware of the latest trends in AI development and how technology is changing. From that perspective, how challenging do you see that regulators have it Are there people that are skilled enough to even assess these solutions? Yeah, it puts doctors and patients in a real quandary because without knowing the criteria and understanding how the FDA is reviewing the technologies and what's being done behind the scenes to ensure that they're working effectively and appropriately, then the clinicians really have no ability to assess their value until they begin to use them in care. And that's really what's happening. The FDA will approve a product and then there will be follow-up studies and with providers who will agree to use it. And some of that is the normal sort of feeling out process that happens anytime you have a new technology. But I think that it's just It's a real difficult thing right now. A lot of pressure is on providers to use and take up these products, and they really don't know if they're going to work. And the danger, I think, is really that without the confidence in the assessment, the FDA's approval begins to look more like a rubber stamp as opposed to uh, a real meaningful certification of a, a product's value. I mentioned before that you went through 161 products that were approved by the FDA. Can you tell me a little bit more how that research looked like? How long did it take? And what did anything surprise you? What were your expectations before going into this mission? Yeah, it did surprise me because it, it took me um, probably two to three months to go through all the filings. And I just expected that there would be more detail in them, that you'd really be able to get a sense from reading the documents about what, what the back and forth was between the developer and, uh, and the FDA. There just isn't a lot of detail in those documents. I think they're really seen as somewhat of an afterthought in the FDA's review process. I think from my checks in talking with different Um, makers of the technologies. I think the FDA in many respects is digging in and is asking a lot of important, valuable questions about how the products work and how how the AI is applied and how the validation was done and what's in the training set and so on and so forth. But we don't get to see the answers and we don't get to see that back and forth. And so it's just very hard to get any clear picture of what is actually being done. And that that was surprising to me. I expected to get a better sense of how that process was unfolding and what questions were being asked and answered. So yeah, it took several months to go through all the filings and then build my own 
database based on what was in there and what wasn't. And I found there was just a lot lacking. Did you by any chance see in the in these approvals that times differed between products? So is is there like a standard time that a company can expect for an approval or were different products subjected to different timelines? I didn't really look as much at the time between the submission of the product and the approval. So I can't really speak to that. I think typically it's at least a six-month process, but it depends upon which regulatory pathway you get routed down. The FDA has pre-market approval, which is the most rigorous. It has de novo, and then it has its 510K process. 510K is used in most of them, and typically that's between four or six months, sometimes longer. But I didn't I didn't take a look at that specifically between products to get to be able to give you any reliable details on whether there was significant differences between the individual products. One of the big stories that you also covered was what happened and what is still happening with IBM Watson. So you covered it from the perspective of why this technology that seemed so impressive and so promising turned out not to be as effective or bring as much efficiency as we have hoped. And, but you also looked at what companies can be mindful of when rolling out AI solutions. So the obvious question here for me is the puzzling moment when it became clear that IBM Watson is not what it was marketed as. And I wonder from your perspective as a journalist, as someone who's following the uh, field closely, where do you see the reasons that it takes years for basically deception, so I don't say fraud, to be revealed in these solutions? To which extent can this be attributed to the fact that when we're talking about disruptive solutions, it's they're new. The the maker understands them. There's a lot of secrecy involved in revealing the details. So how can you know we know when are we potentially over optimistic about something when you can't really assess it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there is that uh, there's a hype cycle that any new technology goes through. And I think that's proved to be very valid and true as it pertains to IBM and AI in general. The marketing just makes it hard to see through it. That's what happened. I think the company, IBM in particular, was very aggressive in marketing the capabilities in this product, and it was very successful marketing. It captured people's attentions. Everyone in healthcare, at least many of the major companies, were running toward IBM and saying, yeah, we'll sign up for a partnership. We want our name on this too. Let's launch Watson, and that's something that's going to get us business. It's good for us. It's good for you, and let's go forth and prosper. But then when they began plugging it in, slowly they realized that, wait, this actually doesn't help us that much in in this way. And I think IBM was a pioneer in the space and the journey that it took really revealed a lot of important questions that have to be answered, asked and answered when it's being implemented. There's a whole field of implementation science about how you take the AI product that performs great in the lab and then you put it into a clinical setting and it just doesn't help 
the way you thought it would from the lab, because there's just a huge difference between those two things. And over the past six or eight years, as IBM's been trying to work its way into the market, we've learned about that. And that's been exhibit A in that process. So you're saying if it doesn't work, we at least learned a lot. Exactly. I think we did learn a lot. And I think IBM deserves some credit for for teaching us all of that, but to its own detriment, because the product just revealed that and it's the process that it went through just revealed that AI is just not a plug and play thing. You don't just take it out of the lab and say, hey, we've got this great thing and it's going to save lives in cancer and it's going to improve treatment and make it bespoke and personalized to everybody. And here you go. And it just doesn't work that way. It's just way more complicated. And, and yeah, so I think the process that, that, that clinicians and IBM and other technologies have gone through has really revealed that. And, and IBM was the first one to go down that path in such an aggressive way. We've seen companies in health tech fail. We've seen companies that seem very promising just yeah disappear one day for various reasons. But I think stories like this and stories such as the one with Watson, where you mentioned that the marketing was very aggressive. It's just such a shame in essence, because it has multiple negative effects. And on the one hand, marketing as an industry look, looks bad because marketers are just trying to make even false claims look great. And then on the other hand, this really undermined the trust in AI and what it can actually do. I guess the next question is, how can we prevent AI providers or developers and innovators look bad just because they're doing something with AI? And let's leave aside the fact that Maybe this is not the case today, but at least a year or two years, three years ago, everybody claimed that they're using AI, even if they didn't. It's a complex field for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most important things is to approach the process with some degree of humility, realizing that it it is going to be a, a, a challenging and long process to prove that an AI system, when put into clinical care or another domain like drug discovery is going to produce meaningful results. And I think by following the science and let the science do the talking instead of the marketing department, I think that's a good way to approach it, to really focus on, okay, we need to rigorously evaluate this product to prove that it can really help people in the way that we want it to. And you need to prove that before you say it. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to go through a learning process to really understand AI and to be able to do the stories that you do? Yeah, it took me a long time. The introduction to Watson was really my introduction to the use of AI in medicine and in healthcare. And we started working on that story in early 2017, and we didn't publish a story on it until September of 2017. So it was many months of just becoming familiar with the technology, how it worked, and then talking to doctors around the world about what they were seeing and in terms of results and and the challenges. We went into it agnostic, thinking, okay, let's just take a look and see how this is working. And it was probably about five or six months into the process where we really began to get a sense that it wasn't performing 
as advertised, that there were just a lot of challenges with the use of the product. We were hearing a lot of complaints from doctors around the world. So it took a long time to to really understand the impact and the difference between what was being claimed and what was being um, generated in terms of value and evidence. And, and yeah, that it was... Um, I think that we're we're really gratified that the stories have gotten out there and had the impact and the readership that they have, because I think these are really important questions that I hope people will take up. Mm-hmm. And we're learning more every day, knowing the, the development and what we've learned so far. What kind of makes you optimistic? And when you talk to clinicians, do you see that they're more skeptical or more optimistic when it comes to AI tools and adoption? And perhaps to which extent do you think that the pricing of this solution is going to be a barrier to implementation in the clinical setting? Yeah, I would say on balance, clinicians are still more optimistic about it, I would say. But it depends on which clinician you ask and where they work, because I think there are a lot of the major academic medical centers all over the United States that have the resources and the time to spend on developing and working with these technologies are very optimistic about it because they see real possibilities here. But then when you talk about the hospitals where the vast majority of Americans get care, the budgets are too thin and the research isn't research budget isn't there to be able to work with these products. If you went to a couple of local hospitals around me in Ohio, you would probably get quizzical looks or an eye roll if you started talking about (laughs) the use of AI in medicine. But then you talk to institutions that are working with these technologies and the technology is able to do amazing things. I spent some time at Mayo Clinic last year working or reporting on efforts to develop AI within cardiology. And the ability of the AI to pluck out from like streams of echocardiogram data signals of disease that clinicians cannot see by their eye, such that you can really begin to treat a patient before or at least understand a patient's heart abnormalities or problems that haven't yet arisen such that you might be able to help treat them or help them improve lifestyle decisions or so forth. It's incredible. And in it, and I think it can do enormous good. And we'll, we'll just have to see. As far as the part of your question about payment, it's a huge barrier because I don't think there's really any process to assess the value of these products and price them. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is really responsible for that process. And they're still focused on assigning cost based on the presence of hardware. So they want to know, you know there really isn't a process for software as a medical device to be priced by CMS. They just granted their first new technology add-on payment to AI earlier this year, a solution by Viz AI, and that's within radiology. And they're just, that's the first kind of crack open of the door to begin to assess what the value of these technologies are. But that's happening before we really know what the evidence is on the sort of on a broader view of how these technologies are impacting patient care and outcomes. That's something we have to see. And I just don't think the evidence is in to really reliably price the products. So we'll just have to see how that unfolds. It's, I'm sure it's going to be challenging because there's a general 
awareness or hope or conviction even that with technology, especially such uh, solutions, if you work preventative, if you uh, diagnose something earlier, then the medical costs are going to decrease. But I guess the another side of technology is also that you have to be mindful of the updates that you have to be mindful that the equipment that the hardware is not too old that all kind of perhaps brings in additional forces that make me wonder if with all the technology coming into healthcare are we gonna get to savings or is healthcare just going to become more expensive I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's a huge danger, I think, with AI. Is it going to have the impact that, that everyone is hoping that it will improve outcomes and reduce costs? Or is it just going to layer another cost on top of, of cost? And one story I think about all the time is from the late 90s, when an earlier generation of AI was put into use in breast imaging, CAD, computer-aided diagnosis technology. So it was approved by the FDA in the late 1990s, and then it got uh, reimbursement through CMS, and everybody started using it because everybody thought that it would make care better. Seven years later, after huge studies were done, we find out that it did not improve outcomes. It did not improve care. It only added $400 million in cost a year. And that's the danger that we're facing right now, that we can go down this road and use this technology and put it into care And based on retrospective studies and AUC and all the sort of pristine lab data that we get on the performance of AI, put it into care. Five years from now, we just realize, you know what? That just actually cost a lot of money and didn't actually improve people's health outcomes. So I think people really have to pay attention to those, to history here and think about making sure that we have reliable ways to assess the value of the products before we start paying for them. Which kind of brings us to my almost last question. One of the things that you also wrote about was that the FDA wants to have patient insight into the perception of AI. And it's always good to see also how patients feel about technologies that are used on them or are designed for them. And the article ended with two questions. The one was, how will AI developers and regulators rope patients and clinicians into the process? process? And will that happen before new tools emerge in the doctor's office? So I wonder, what's the answer today to these two questions? Yeah, the answer today is that patients don't even know it's being used. They don't even know it's being used. It could be being used in the, it's in the background of their care to uh, read their medical images or analyze their data. And decisions are being made without their knowledge about the use of AI. And I just don't think there's any process right now for bringing patients into the conversation to say, hey, we use this AI tool and the AI tool said X. And based on that and our further analysis of all the other information that we've collected about you, this is what we think the best course of treatment is. That conversation is not really happening yet. And I think it's a really important question for clinicians and AI developers to take up. What should patients know about this? And how much do they need to know to protect their rights and their safety and their privacy? And that that is just not, it's not happening yet. 
And I think that's that's something that needs to be really carefully considered as we go forward into the next phases of AI deployment. Mm-hmm. What kind of stories are you currently working on? Well, we're doing a kind of a year-long series that kind of got interrupted by COVID, so it continues to go. But And so I'm working on a few different stories about AI coming up. One, I'm, I'm really interested in looking into the sort of underlying methodology that's being used to validate AI products and looking at the studies, the limitations of the products, what's in those limitation sections. And considering, because you look at measures like AUC, which is a measure area under the curve, which is a measure of machine learning accuracy, and it's universally used to assess the performance of an AI system. But that might be the performance of an AI system on an enriched data set in on retrospective data in a fairly pristine, uncomplicated setting. And so how much does that really tell you about how the product's going to perform? And so I'm starting to look at that in a little bit more of a concerted way to try to get a better sense of how much that methodology supports the use of these tools. Yeah, it reminds me on clinical trials for drugs where the setting, the patients is very controlled, very rigorous because you're trying to prove a point and then maybe a drug can be approved, but you still have no clue how it's going to work in the real world with more patients that are way more diverse than those that were included in the study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a good comparison. And one of the important differences still is that when you have those drug trials, it's there are review boards. It, the data is poured over in public. We see it happen. You can attend those meetings and watch them. You can't do that in AI. It doesn't happen. There isn't that kind of robust public process that in which those things are discussed in a public forum. It, it's just not happening yet. And I think it's a fair question for people to ask, should it be different? Drugs are different from AI tools. They are, and the risks are different. But does that mean that the data analysis and the the sort of venue, the public venue in which the analysis takes place should be different? Mm-hmm. That kind of sounds to me that the speed that we hope to get with technology and healthcare improvement is slowing down. The more you think about everything that you need to be uh, careful about, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is slowing down because I think people are realizing that it is just a much more difficult process and it just takes longer than I think any company looking at the next quarter earnings wants it to take. It just takes longer. It doesn't necessarily work within a company's ideal sort of business cycle. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.